Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Mark chapter 15, verses 42 through 47, with Pastor John King. Uh, today, we are going to continue through Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 42 through 47. And while you're turning there, I just want to uh, kind of highlight what we talked about last week. Last week we concluded our study of Jesus' last hours on the cross with his final words from Luke and John. In Luke he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In John 19.30 he said, It is finished with a loud cry. That word, it is finished, is teleo or tetelestai. That is a shout of victory. In other words, he paid it in full. This was immediately followed, as you recall, by three supernatural signs. The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There was an earthquake. And the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised from their graves. There remains as well another supernatural occurrence. You recall the centurion who was assigned to supervise Jesus' crucifixion. When he witnessed how Jesus suffered and died, it came to him. When he saw the few words that Jesus spoke, he realized that this was no false Messiah, that it was no revolutionary. No, Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. And the centurion said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. We meet two more men who had a secret faith in Christ today. That is, until the events of the last 24 hours had come to pass. These two men had a secret faith in Christ. And it's now that they would have the boldness and the conviction to go public with their love for Jesus. Even if it cost them everything. We read in verse 42. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead, and summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he, Joseph, brought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen, and he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Heavenly Father, once again, we're here. You've given us this opportunity, Lord. It was by no mistake that we've come to hear your word today in these passages. And so, Lord, we ask that you would fill our minds with a desire for more of you, our hearts. Lord, that you would fill us fully with your Holy Spirit, that we may take in once again 
this familiar story and understand it to a deeper level or just to be reminded of the work that you had done and the impact that you had had and that you continue to have to this very day on the lives of countless people. And that includes us, Lord. Thank you once again for your word. Go before us now, and all God's people said, Amen. Mark notes that it was the preparation day. You know, he's going to talk about this day, uh, the significance of it. And today, in preparation day, we're going to meet once again this Joseph of Arimathea. It says, now when evening had come, what we mean by evening in their time was 3 p.m. You remember Jesus was on the cross for six hours, from nine in the morning to three in the afternoon. And for them, evening or early evening would consider, be considered the time between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. And note he says, because it was preparation day. And notes to say, it goes on to say, that is the day before the Sabbath, pro-Sabbaton. Now you know that the Sabbath was a day of worship for the Jews. Their days began at 6 p.m. Jewish days ran from 6 p.m. the day before for us to 6 p.m. the next day. Strict Jewish law said that once the Sabbath had begun... No work could be done, including the burial of the dead. So here Jesus has just died on the cross, and if they don't do something about his body before 6 p.m., then he's going to lay on that cross. His body's going to stay on that cross. God's not going to allow that to happen at all. Now while you're here in in Mark, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn over to John chapter 19. Leave your finger right where you were at Mark, and we'll come back to that. Or leave a place marker. But John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. Now here we have some crucial details to help us have a deeper understanding of the prophetic nature surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. You see, we always need to remember that God is sovereign over every single detail. He didn't leave anything to chance. Everything was gone according to his plan. Even though when we read the text, when we see the cruelty, we see the terrible death that Jesus died, we always need to know and understand that God is sovereign. And that helps us today, doesn't it? That helps us when we live in this crazy world. When we see our government going insane, (laughs) And I don't want to go too far. This is not a soapbox, but you know what I'm talking about. God is sovereign over every single detail. In John 19, 31 through 37, we read it. Therefore, because it was, again, the preparation day, that the bodies, he explains, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For the Sabbath was a high day. So the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. 
But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, that's John the Apostle, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, John the Apostle, John the Apostle, so that you and I may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Again, we said Jesus died at 3 p.m. He died on Friday, the day of preparation for the Sabbath. If anything that was to be done with Jesus' body, it had to be done immediately. It had to be done quickly. Only three hours remained for work. Why? Well, I mean, why were the Jews so intent on getting Jesus' body off the cross? Well, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23. See, these were men of the law. They lived under the law. Even though the curtain had just been rent and the price had been paid, they still lived under the law. It says in that passage, you see it there, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. And we learn that. We learn that Jesus was separated from the Father you know, uh, for a period of time, while the, the, the sin of the earth, the sin of all of us, all of the mankind was laid upon him intensely. And he was actually accursed of God during that period of time. It says the Sabbath was a high day. What does that mean? Well, this particular Sabbath, which is every Saturday, also occurred in conjunction with the Passover. It was considered a great day of special sanctity. You see their religion. It's kind of like having Christmas on a Sunday for us. And the Jews asked Pilate to have their legs broken. Why? Well, so that they could hasten their death. A normal crucifixion could take several days to complete. One writer put it this way, how the Romans treated those that were crucified. The Romans either dumped the bodies of crucified criminals in the trash heaps or left the bodies hanging upon the cross for the vultures and animals to consume. The latter served as an example of criminal punishment to the public. If Jesus' body was not removed quickly within these three hours, the fate of his body was set. The Romans would not care what happened to him, and no Jew could remove him until the Sabbath was over. Here we see how both cultures, the Jewish culture and the Roman government, the Romans, had their distinct legalistic manner of exercising what they considered their sense of duty. Exercising you know, their, their call. For the Jews, it was the need to fulfill the letter of the law. It was a high day before the Sabbath. But Charles Spurgeon makes a note. He says, speaking of the Jews who were so intent on keeping their laws. Their consciences were not wounded by the murder of Jesus, he writes, but they were greatly moved by the fear of ceremonial pollution. Religious scruples may live in a dead conscience. 
For the Romans, it was their strict conformity to how they had refined the process of crucifixion. From the scourging to the death march to the final gruesome stages of death on the cross. Listen to what Alfred Edersheim writes. He was an expert. He was a Jew, Messianic Jew. He wrote uh, history historically about the Jews and about scripture and commentaries back in the 1800s. Alfred Edersheim. He says, and what the Jews now propose, in, in other words, asking for Pilate to break the legs, what the Jews now propose to Pilate was indeed a shortening, but not in any sense of mitigation of the punishment. Sometimes there was added to the punishment of crucifixion that of breaking the bones. It's called crurifragrium, uh, crurifragrium in Latin by means of a club or a hammer. This would not in itself bring death, but the breaking of the bones was always followed by a coup de gras, a sword or a lance or a stroke, which immediately put an end to what remained of life, pierced Jesus' side. Thus the breaking of the bones was a sort of increase of punishment by way of compensation for its shortening by the final stroke that followed. What are we talking about? When the, when the Roman soldier pushed the lance through Jesus' side, blood and water came out. This confirms with certainty that Jesus died on the cross. Why do we, make, why do we need to make that clear? Because people want to... Um, Take away from the gospel story. They want to lie about it. They want to say that he never died on the cross. It's so important for us to understand that this confirmed it. The water mixed with blood has medical significance. This pericardium sac that surrounded the heart was normally filled with water. Because it was now mingled with blood, it indicated that Jesus' heart had actually ruptured. And you know, many people say, that because Jesus bore the weight and the, the, inte- the intensity of the sins of all mankind, and he was separated from the Father, that he actually died of a broken heart. His heart just exploded within him. But notice in verse 36, remember, God is sovereign. As, as detailed as you want to get, God is sovereign. He says, for these things were done that Scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Numbers 9.12, they shall leave none of it until morning, nor break one of its bones, referring to the ordinances of the Passover. Remember, Jesus was the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb for mankind. Psalm 34.20, he guards his bones, not one of them is broken. And Zechariah 12.10, It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication when they will look on me whom they pierced. When Jesus comes back during the tribulation, when he stands before his people, the nation Israel, they're going to look upon him and see who they pierced. And yes, they will mourn for him as as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Prophetic language yet to come. One writer 
commenting on this. He said, the pagan soldiers would have been utterly unaware of those Old Testament passages. Even if they had been, they had no motivation for trying to bring them to pass. Yet their behavior was guided by the invisible hand of Almighty God. The unwitting actions of the indifferent soldiers stemmed from their own motives, impulses, and will, yet they were also under the absolute governing control of God so that the Scripture would be fulfilled and the Messiah affirmed. Now we can start the message. Back to this man, Joseph of Arimathea. Back to verse 43. Verse 43 says, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. This prominent council member. We learn his name, where he's from, his position in society, but the most important thing we learn about him is that he's a believer in Christ. He's prominent. In other words, he was on the Sanhedrin. He was influential, he was honorable, he was wealthy, and he was respectable. Yes, there are people in our government that serve the Lord. Some of them even right here. And some of them in the highest positions that are being silenced today. But they're praying, just like you and I are praying. But it says, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. What does this mean? He was a disciple. Matthew 27 well, first of all, Luke 23, 50, he was a, a good and just man. And then Matthew 27, 57, it says, Now the evening had come, and also came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also became a disciple of Jesus. In John 19, 38, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. You think about the underground church around the world. Many cannot reveal their faith. They cannot reveal that they have faith in Jesus for fear of their lives, for fear of their position in, in life, for fear of their you know, families. But notice what he did. He came and he took courage. He went to Pilate. He went to the governor, the, you know, went to the head shed, if you will, and asked for the body of Jesus. Because only that man, the governor, Pilate, could grant that request. If you have a King James version, the word asked, King James uses the word, he craved the body. Knowing Pilate's authority to grant this request, this shows the attitude that he had when he asked. It's though he was begging for Jesus' body. You should know that the normal custom was for a relative or a close friend to come and ask for the body you know, themselves. If they were going to ask for the body, it should have been a family member. But Jesus' mother had been placed in the care of John. She was not there to claim the body, and all the disciples we know had fled. Therefore, Joseph asked for the body. You see, we never know who has, God has standing in, do we? We never know who is ready to do the work of the Lord when we think there's nobody to do it. We think there's nobody available. You know, people called in sick. They couldn't come. They had to miss. Something came up. But somebody's always ready. See, God always shows up, doesn't he? He always shows up. We learn that every week here at this church, don't we? And every church everywhere else. I mean, it's not, there is not a single Sunday that goes by, friends, that something doesn't come up. It's always going to be something. And we know that God always shows up. 
David Guzik writes this. He says, In antiquity, the execution of a condemned man did not mark the final moment of his humiliation. You see, in their eyes, they were going to continue to humiliate even the dead body. We see this in the world today. When you see people's bodies being drugged through the streets, because the humiliation must continue on and on and on. Roman law dictated the loss of all honors in death. And even the right of burial was determined by magisterial decree. It was not at all uncommon for the body to be left upon the cross, either to rot or to be eaten by predatory birds or animals. We've, you know, we've been through this, I keep covering this. But it wasn't unusual to grant the body to a friend or relative for burial either. But the point is that they had to request it from the Roman magistrate. The fate of even the executed on the corpse was in the hands of the Roman governor. Now you might have a question. You, you think about this Joseph of Arimathea and you think about what the evil that was done by the Sanhedrin, how they drummed up the false charges and how they had you know, managed to get him convicted and put to death as an innocent man. And this man, Joseph, was on the Sanhedrin. He was on that council. Didn't he participate in Jesus' trial? And Scripture tells us, yes, but he didn't agree with their decision. Look at Luke 23.51. Luke 23.51. I think we have that there. He, talking about Joseph, had not consented to their decision and deed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, and he himself was also you know, a believer. He was waiting for the kingdom of God, it says in Luke 23.51. So even though he was on the Sanhedrin, he did not consent with their decree. And so as we take a moment of, you know, how, and you think of this, and again, this is one of those situations where, okay, how can I apply this? You know, how can I apply this scripture to my life? Well, we think about Joseph and the most important things about his life. It wasn't his status or his place of birth. It wasn't that he was rich or even that he was a good and just man. It was because he was a disciple of Jesus. And he took courage in asking for Jesus' body. Meaning he was bold. He did not dread or shun through with fear. How about you and I? Are we his disciples? Are you his disciple? Are you willing to be a bold witness for Jesus? Are we asking for boldness in his name and in his, in his authority? Lord, help me. I want to believe, but help me with my unbelief. Maybe he's speaking to you, I don't know, about going to Raleigh on October 16th. If, you know, I don't know what your plans are. I don't know what's going on. It's an opportunity to be bold. It's an opportunity to go public with your faith and stand for the unborn. Next, we see that Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Pilate marveled. What does that mean? He wondered at it. He kind of wondered what was going on. We learned earlier that the religious leaders requested that the crucified bodies be taken down before the Sabbath. And Pilate obliged them by ordering his soldiers to break the legs. So he knew that Jesus was going to die quicker. 
And so he called for the centurion and he asked him if he had been dead for some time. You see, this had to have been a very long and weary nightmare for Pilate. If you want to feel sorry for Pilate, which I doubt we will, history doesn't. <laughs> I don't think you and I will. With all the political drama, the supernatural signs, his wife's dream, and the fact that Jesus was totally innocent of the so-called crimes. He knew this. Pilate knew all this. And now he was waiting to confirm that Jesus was already dead. He, he wanted this thing over with. Just as much as the Jews wanted their bodies taken down so they could keep their legal standing. Pilate would be, uh, for the rest of his life, you know he had nightmares over this. Nightmares to his grave. In verse 45, so when he found out from the centurion, because it was the centurion's job, the same man who declared, surely this is the Son of God, it was also his job to certify to sign the death certificate, if you will, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as soon as he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now this was a man who was, Jesus was condemned of high treason. It would be very unusual for him to do that. And, and for him to release it to a non-relative had to have been God's hand, really would have been extremely unusual. And you ask the question, maybe, well, why are these facts so important? Why, why? again, I said it earlier, why, why would we want to make a sort of a, a not a, a big deal, a message, if you will, about these particular facts? Why are they important to us? I like what Chuck Swindoll wrote. Here's why. It's from a, a, what we call an apologetic standpoint. Not apologizing for our faith, but being able to tell others why we believe what we believe. And how we can stand on the truth of God's word. It says, first of all, Chuck Swindoll says, first, the religious authorities would later propose alternate explanations for the resurrection. You know, if you continue on through the Gospels, you see they're going to say all kinds of crazy stuff happened. Uh, you know, because they're going to be blown away by the fact that there's an empty tomb here the next day. They might claim that his body was stolen or that the Romans had failed to execute their prisoner. Even today, he writes, cynics will say, well, actually, he didn't really die on the cross. He slipped into a coma. And when he was taken down from the cross, everyone thought he was dead. But in the tomb, he somehow revived. So you're telling me, this is kind of what the argument Chuck Swindoll would offer if somebody were to present that. He's saying, you're telling me that after scourging and crucifixion and slipping into a coma, Jesus awoke? gathered the strength to move a two-ton boulder, slipped past the men guarding his tomb, and disappeared into a vast Christian conspiratorial underground network that later claimed he had risen from the dead. Right. Right. The crucifixion experts certified the death of Jesus, and Pilate released his body to Joseph. We also learn from John's account, again, leaning on John, because Mark doesn't give a lot of details, but thank you for the harmony of the Gospels, Lord. 
We also learn from John's account that Joseph was accompanied by another member of the council. You know his name, Nicodemus. You know, sometimes referred to as Nick at night, right? What he did. <laughs> I'm glad, glad we could break the ice with that one, James. That's good. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't heard that before. Maybe. <laughs> I thought, thought that was an old one. But anyway. <laughs> well, speaking of that event, he previously interviewed Jesus, Nicodemus did, about the doctrine of being born again. During a previous Passover, Nicodemus the Pharisee had secretly met at night with Jesus. Why did he meet at night? Well, he didn't want anybody to know. You know, secret. He had a secret. Questions for the Lord. Acknowledging that Jesus was from God, Jesus used the opportunity to teach this man about the need to be born again. In order to see the kingdom of God, this Pharisee, a teacher of Israel, he was a te- remember, he was a teacher. He was a, to be a teacher of the, test, the, the scriptures, you had to know your stuff. <laughs> and he had to be taught by Jesus. Because he struggled to understand Jesus' words. He asked Jesus, how can someone, referring to being born again, how can someone return to his mother's womb a second time? John 3, 5 and 7. Jesus answered him. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, this man had received the gospel message directly from the Master, from Lord Jesus himself. Imagine you know, Jesus witnessing to you in the person, in the flesh. And telling you, you need to be saved. You need to be born again. We also know that Nicodemus had defended Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Later in John's gospel, during an earlier uh, secret visit by Jesus to Jerusalem, he'd come secretly, you remember, to Jerusalem during the Passover when he wasn't going to. He was going to stay up in Galilee. But he ended up coming down secretly into the city. And we read of Jesus responding to the stirring about Jesus. They were talking about Jesus. Little did they know that he was there. And uh, it says in John 7, 50, 51, this man Nicodemus, who had come, again, he was Nick at night, had come to Jesus by night, being one of them, and said, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? You know, this sense of justice was in the heart of this man, and he had met with Jesus. And so he actually stood up for Jesus and defended him before the Sanhedrin. Remember, they've been plotting his death for months and months, years. And now we are reminded that he assisted in Jesus' burial. And again, we look at John's verse 19, chapter 19, 39 through 40. And here we have Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. That's a lot of spices. Then they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as was the custom of the Jews, is to bury. So we see these two men of wealth and power, influence, willing to risk everything, and now publicly acknowledge Jesus before the people. 
their peers, even the Roman governor. Last week we read of the centurion who declared truly this man was the son of God, but he wasn't the only person who was affected by supernatural signs. The torn veil, the earthquake. And obviously these men and many others were shaken by what they had seen as God moved in their hearts. You see, even though the Romans in their cruelty would humiliate the body of the dead and mutilate Jesus, our Lord and Savior, after his death, while he was still in the tomb, while he had, before he had risen again, had had a powerful effect on these men. A powerful effect. It only gets better and better for us, obviously. This Nicodemus would drag this hundred pounds of burial spices through the city. You don't think they didn't notice that? People didn't notice. What's this rich guy doing? He's on the, he's on the high council. What's he dragging a, a load of spices for? Out to the Golgotha. Where's he going? What's he doing? Those hundred pounds of spices were what you would bring to a king's death. And that's what he saw Jesus as. His king. And of course we know that jo Joseph would go, he would take courage and go to the Roman governor and beg for his body. And here we see, even though Jesus had a very dishonorable death, he had an honorable burial. An honorable burial. Verse 46, then he, again Mark is just covering Joseph, but we know that there's both of them. He brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. These were men of high esteem. Okay, They wouldn't normally be the ones to get dirty and bloody and filthy. But they were going to take Jesus' body down from the cross. They were going to have to pull those nails out. They were going to have to remove everything. They were going to have to take this blood-soaked body, this body that was beyond recognition. And they take this fine linen and they would wrap him in it. They would anoint his body. The way the preparation would go, uh, normally often the body was first washed, then it was anointed with aromatic preparations. It was wrapped in cloth and then bound with burial bandages usually of linen. And again, the face was apparently covered or bound separately with a face cloth. But they were in, you know, going against the clock at this point. They only had a few hours. They had to get this done. So it was done hastily, these men. And it says, He laid him in a tomb which he had hewn out of rock. And this tomb would have been very close to the site. Where Jesus was crucified. Joseph had recently acquired this tomb for his family. Matthew 27, 60, it says, and laid his body in a new tomb which was hewn out of rock. This is prophetic because Isaiah 53, 9 would say, and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. 
because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He would have an honorable burial. And it says, uh, back to our text, it says, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. The stone would prevent animals and grave robbers from entering in, obviously. Now, an interesting side note about Jewish burial. Wealthy families would bury their dead in a family tomb, and then they would return, maybe up to a year later, and they would retrieve the bones. And they would take those bones, and they would put them in what's called an ossuary, like a bone box. And they would take them to another location. Now, this family tomb could be reused, could be put you know, to use again. As one writer said, little did they know that Jesus would only need it for part of three separate days. He's only borrowing it for the weekend. Verse 47, and we see Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of Joseph. Joseph. They were there to watch. You know, these faithful women were there to watch. Think of the faithful. I said it last week. Think of the faithful moms and sisters and aunts and grandmoms faithful to watch faithful to watch when you couldn't take care of yourself and there they were observing where he was laid why did they want to know very specifically because they knew that jesus's body had been prepared hastily And they knew that they wanted to try and get back in there and give Jesus, their Lord, a proper burial. They didn't know he would would rise again. That's 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 for next week. But they needed to be exact. They needed the exact location in order to return after the Sabbath because on Saturday no work would be done. So by 6 o'clock Friday night, that's it. Everything's shut down. You can't go anywhere. There's no stores, no place available for you. So they needed to note the exact location. So they could come back and give Jesus a proper burial. So as the long and exhausting day had come to a close, these men and women must have sat and wondered at the future, what it had in store. And like we said, their answer would come before the end of the weekend. One old commentator writes this, Thus Jesus, after his shameful death on the cross, still received an honorable burial. It was given him by disciples that had formerly been too weak to confess their faith. It has often proved the case in times of persecution and danger that the weak become strong and the strong weak. Experienced Christians have deeply disappointed expectations, while others who were still weak in knowledge stood their ground firmly. Isn't that the truth? That fact has hallowed our graves. We need fear neither death nor the grave, friends. Those that fall asleep in Christ rest peacefully in their beds in the earth until the great day of the eternal Easter dawns. Amen? Heavenly Father, we just ask, Lord, that you would go before us, Father. We, we see now we, we're entering this autumn season, aren't we? A couple more weeks and summer's over. 
The leaves are already turning. The leaves are already falling. We approach another holiday season. Lord, each one of us may come in contact with that unsaved relative or friend. And once again, we may feel pressured to be silent about you, Lord. Once again, we may lack boldness to speak the truth in love. How about our neighbors? You know, it'd be one thing to ask a person if they go to church and maybe pull away like, I don't need to ask any more questions, right? As pointed out last night at the conference we uh, attended virtually about the need, Lord, for us to be active because the time is short. The time is short. And Lord, maybe you and I, maybe us, Father, here in this room and those hearing our voice, my voice, need to take another look around us. Find somebody who's younger in the faith, newer in the faith. Come alongside them. Share our wisdom with them. Pour into their lives to make disciples. With all the craziness that goes on in our world, and all the confusion, we, we, we feel paralyzed sometimes, Lord. We, we're paralyzed with fear. But when we look to the cross, when we look to how you died for us, and we see that surely you are the Son of God, then, Father, put it on our hearts to be bold for you, even this day. Pray these things now in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.